Welcome to the Mission Cleveland Weekly Podcast. Encouragement and hope in a despairing world. Well, good evening, everyone. My name is Chris, and it is an honor and a privilege to open up God's Word with you here this evening. Uh, This passage, for me, uh, sort of softened my heart this week. Uh, This is a very tender passage uh, for me as I was reading it and studying it. And I I pray that God will move in all of our hearts this evening. Before we dig into this this chapter 2 of Ruth, I just think that we ought to go back to chapter 1 and review it. For those of you who weren't here, we're in this series in Ruth. In the beginning of the book of Ruth, we learn that this is in the time of the judges. Now, this is a really harsh time in the history of God's people. It's a time marked by violence and desperation and cruelty. There are few faithful people, it seems, during the time of the judges. In fact, if you want to be really depressed, I encourage you, go read Judges this week and you'll see what I mean. The book ends with this cryptic statement. The last verse in the book of Judges is, In those days there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And of course, this sort of selfishness and self-centeredness is the root of so much societal chaos. I think we experience some of this today. Uh, You do you sounds good on a bumper sticker, but what if you doing you actually impedes on my rights of me doing me, right? It sounds good on a bumper sticker, but if we're all just you doing you, we're really in a chaotic place, probably hurting one another quite a bit, and that's what they were all doing. And, And this book of Ruth is sort of like a, taking a microscope to one particular family living through this kind of chaos. And what we learn in the first chapter of Ruth, we we meet this woman named Naomi, her husband, Elimelech, and their two sons, and they're living in Bethlehem, the same, yes, the very little town of Bethlehem, where hundreds of years later, our Lord Jesus Christ is born, right? Um, this, This town, Bethlehem, Bethlehem in ancient Hebrew just means the house of bread, the house of bread. That's kind of an ironic name because right in the beginning of the book, we learned that Bethlehem is in the midst of experiencing a famine. And Elimelech decides to move their family to Moab. Now, for the ancient Hebrew listener, this would have been like a, a huge red flag, like warning, you know, like a, I'm imagining sort of a warning siren going off that they're moving to Moab. Because God isn't, uh, wouldn't encourage them to move to Moab. The Moabites aren't people who who are following God. In In fact, they follow false gods. And following these false gods, they even worship these false gods by sacrificing children to them. This isn't a good place to live. And God encourages um his people to stay away from the Moabites. But Elimelech does what is right in his own eyes and moves his family to Moab. 
When they get to Moab, the two sons marry Moabite women. Again, major red flag. And then shortly after that, the husband and the two sons die, leaving Naomi in a very desperate situation, right? She's a widow, which is really hard, right? But a widow in the time of the judges. Uh, Just a terrible fate, a terrible place to be. So in this place of desperation, she decides that she's going to go back to Bethlehem. She turns to her two daughters-in-law and say, hey, your best bet is to go back to your your father's house. Go back to your family. Uh, It's no good for you to be riding with me at this point. And one of the daughters-in-law clearly is like, thank you. (laughs) She's like, thank you. That sounds like a good plan. I'm going to go back to my dad's house. The other woman, though, really boldly and courageously makes this incredible pledge, right? It's one of the most beautiful passages in Scripture where she makes this pledge to not only stick with Naomi, she makes a pledge to Naomi and to Yahweh, our God. And so they head back to, to Bethlehem. At the end of the chapter, they're arriving in Bethlehem and some people look and they go, oh, it's Naomi. Naomi's back. And uh, she very melodramatically says, no, my name is no longer my Naomi. My name is now Bitterness, um, which I understand, but it just, it's kind of funny. <laughs> it's kind of a very intense, um, hey, Naomi, I'm no longer Naomi. I'm Bitterness. Call me Bitterness. Okay. Okay, Bitterness. Um, <laughs> and... Um, And then the very end of this chapter one, there's like a mic drop moment because it says that they arrive in Bethlehem just as the barley harvest is beginning. And the reader, the listener, has to be saying, oh my goodness, maybe all of this tragedy could have been avoided. They left Bethlehem because there was a famine. And as it turns out, the harvest was on the way. So that's the mic drop at the end of the chapter. Uh, Let's pray, and then we'll dig into chapter two. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the thoughts and the meditations of each one of our hearts would be holy and pleasing to you, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. So we read here in chapter two, it says, And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered the field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Elimelech, you remember, was Naomi's husband, right? Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you pretty much what happens. So here we meet Boaz, the next central character in our story. And it's by no accident that the narrator includes this greeting right as he introduces Boaz, because we're supposed to see Boaz in contrast to everything else that's been happening in the book of Judges, everything else surrounding this story that's been a pretty depressing story so far. The Boaz is a God follower. 
God is saturating every aspect of his life. And so he greets his workers, those under his care, with the Lord be with you. And they respond right away, and also with you. And it's clear that they have this liturgy down pat, because this is the way Boaz lives. And then we continue to read that Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvester. She came into the field and has remained here from morning until now, except for a short rest in the shelter. Now, the scholars, Fewell and Gunn, try to imagine how Ruth must have felt in this moment. When she hears this question, to whom she belongs, inwardly she must be asking, as she's hearing, who, whose woman, whose young woman is this? Whose, he said, whose? Nobody's, she thought. Nobody's hired worker, nobody's wife, nobody's mother, nobody's daughter. Nobody's sister, and I suppose that makes me a nobody too. And more than that, she was a foreigner, a nobody in their country, not only just any nobody, but a Moabite foreigner. And, and notice that the supervisor informed Boaz that this was the Moabite woman who returned with Naomi. He, he could have said, this is... Naomi's daughter-in-law. He could have said, oh, this is the widow of Naomi's son. Instead, he points out her foreignness. And can you even imagine how exposed and vulnerable Ruth must feel in this moment? But then Boaz addresses her directly, saying, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in any other field, and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch, watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. That's important in the time of the judges. If you read the book of Judges, you'll see how significant that is, that he's making it clear that she's not to be touched. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have, fi have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? I mean, this is where my heart began to get stirred. I mean, this is so beautiful, isn't it? It's beautiful. Boaz's words must have felt like a salve. And Ruth's question, why, really gets to the heart of the matter. Had she been raised a Hebrew, she would have understood at least part of the reason why Boaz is doing this. Because Boaz is a God follower. He's not just doing what's right in his own eyes. He's interested in doing what God wants him to do. He's a man of the word. He knows what God commands regarding this very situation. 
and he follows God's ways. In the book of Deuteronomy, we read, I mean, God addresses this specific situation very directly in the book of Deuteronomy. When he says, when you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back and get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless and the widow. She's two out of three. So that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. I just want to stop for a moment and say, Boaz doesn't even flinch. He knows the word of God. He knows his responsibility and he responds immediately exactly as God commands. <laughs> that should be something obvious, but it is a bit of a challenge for all of us in whatever we steward, whatever we've been given to oversee, whatever work we oversee, whatever finances or resources we oversee, do we stop to ask, Lord, what am I supposed to do with this stuff? Boaz does that. He stops and asks, what he's supposed to do with that which he's been given the steward? He doesn't just do what is right in his own eyes. We talk a lot about following God as Christians, but sometimes the rubber meets the road when it comes to what we've been asked to oversee. And do we stop and ask, what are we supposed to be doing with this stuff, Lord? Or do we just do what we think is right in our own eyes? It's a good challenge. Now, Boaz could have stopped there, but he goes a step further. He doesn't just offer this unnamed foreigner some food. Notice that he stops and he sees her. And more than that, he bestows dignity upon her. That's more than what God commands. Maybe that's the spirit of the law more than just the letter of the law, right? He says, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with a people you did not even know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz bestows blessing upon her. He declares in front of everyone and everything that he oversees that this woman is one of ours. She's one of the daughters of the Most High. He's, she's under his covering. She belongs here. He speaks a blessing over her. And now Ruth responds, may I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord? You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have standing. I do not have the standing of one of your servants. Ruth is grateful. She is so grateful. But in a sense, she still doesn't believe what's happening. She's content to be just below one of his servants. But God has different plans for Ruth, right? We read that at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. 
She ate all she wanted and even had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. I love this because it's like after she got up and went to glean, he gathers his lieutenants together. And he commands them to be more than generous. We'll be, read about that in a second. But I love how he does it because he, he maintains her dignity. He doesn't have her beg. He says to his lieutenants, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. I love that because he's generous and he's doing so. He's bringing this generosity in a way that is also honoring to her. He not only offers her this abundant grain, but they sit down and share a meal together. And we all know that in ancient Hebrew culture, sharing a meal together is a big deal. People would go through exhaustive efforts to just avoid having meals together. Because to have meals together put each other on equal footing, and it it declared peace over one another. It indicated peace and goodwill. Together, Boaz and Ruth partake in the bread and the wine on equal footing. And as Christians, we cannot help but be reminded of our own communion table here, right? Together, like Boaz and Ruth, we come to this table and there is no status and there is no privilege at this table. There's only goodwill and peace. We feast on the bread and the wine of Bethlehem. Of Jesus. And like Ruth, we are made full to overflowing. We are made full to the point where we have something to give away when we leave leave this room every week. Right? When I was a teenager, I didn't come from a Christian home. My, my, My family weren't really churchgoers. They attended church occasionally, kind of Christmas and Easter Christians, if you will. And one summer, my my folks came to my brother and I and said, hey, we're going to this big family reunion in upstate New York in the Adirondack Mountains. And and they started telling us about this family reunion. And and so we went to this thing. It was full of all of these family members who we'd never met. And it turned out we'd never met them because these were all the Christians in our family. And uh, my great uncle invited us, our little family, to go to this family reunion, which took place in this giant Christian retreat center. There was like a thousand other Christians there. There were these worship services and these profound speakers. And all of this was completely foreign to me. I'd never been around like Christian culture. And it was in upstate New York. And I'm from central Florida, from Polk County, Florida. If you're from Polk County, are you really? I'm from Lake Wales. (laughs) That's amazing. See, you found the right home here. Yeah, good job. (laughs) We're like the only two people from this place. It's called Polk County, Florida. Um, We get to this retreat center, and it's all these Christian people, all of which was foreign to me. And, all of, and I met all these other people with my same last name, Sorensen. I thought that our family 
was like the only family on earth with this last name because there are no Scandinavians apparently in Central Florida. It's a very common name, and so if you're from the Midwest, you've heard this name Sorensen a lot, but in Central Florida, everybody mispronounces my name. Nobody's ever heard my name. So I show up there and meet 30 or 40 people with my same last name. And they're all like these beautiful, successful people too. Um, in fact, this whole side of my family has done very well financially. Many of them are investment bankers on Wall Street. And, and it felt kind of like we were the country bumpkins at this family retreat. Uh, and we didn't know all the Christian lingo either. And, and I was a teenager, awkward and insecure already. I had acne and scraggly hair. But beyond all of that, I was an active drug addict. And I was uh, pretty confused, pretty messed up. And I felt so weird at this retreat. I felt like I didn't belong. And I remember sitting down for dinner. On the second night, I remember sitting down for dinner, and this guy comes and sits across from me. He says, hi, my name is Martin. I said, hi, are, am I related to you? And he said, no, no, we're not related. And he started asking me about myself. He wanted to know all about me. And, you know, at 14 or 15 years old, I thought I knew a lot about a lot of things. I had a lot of things to share with him. Um, but I was probably pretty confused and clueless. I told him all about the music I liked. I told him about my girlfriend and told him about all sorts of stuff. And that guy sat with me for every meal, kept wanting to know me, kept wanting to hear my story. He was just super kind to me, kept honoring me. And every once in a while, I'd ask him a question about Christianity. And that went on that whole first year. And then that week, at the end of the week, my parents gave their life to Christ. They became Christians at this camp. But as I said, I was in active addiction. And so the next year came around. And um, we went back to this camp and and. And, and I reconnected with Martin, this guy Martin, who found me again, who wasn't related to me, who just wanted to know about me and kept honoring me and asking me questions. And he truly just saw me. And he kept being interested in me, even though he knew I was, by this point, by year two, I'm telling him all about my drug use. And uh, he even knew that I was going off into the woods and the mountains and getting high and coming back to this Christian retreat center. And then he would sit there and listen to me talk. I have no idea how he had this much patience and this went on year after year after year. And then later on, I ended up becoming a Christian. I gave my life to Christ. I got clean and sober. I've been clean and sober for 30 years now. Ended up meeting my wife and marrying her, Angie. And she's amazing. And I remember after um, we got married, I so wanted to introduce her to my family. So we went back to this Christian conference center and we get there, and sure enough, the first night, this guy Martin sits across from me again. He's like, Chris, it's been a couple of years. And my teenage years were so foggy, I only vaguely remembered him. But then he began asking questions, and he remembered all the details of my life. And he kept asking me these questions. And, and, I, and I told him how I'd given my life to Christ, and he just started weeping. He says, man, I've been praying for you for years. I've been praying for you for years, and I just saw something in you. At the end of that week, he said, hey, I have a challenge for you. When you go home, why don't you open up your Bible and, and read the book of Romans? So I got home, 
found the book of Romans, started reading it. And the scriptures just kind of came alive for me. I start writing notes in the margins. I end up getting a journal, and I'm writing notes in this journal. And I'm sharing all these thoughts with my wife. Angie, can you believe what it's saying here? This is amazing. Do you see how brilliant this is? And she's like, yeah, okay. You know, like, <laughs> I kept bothering her. And then one day she said, you know, you ought to tell somebody else about this stuff. <laughs> so I said, all right, all right. And so I said, I'm going to start a Bible study. So people started coming to our house. And before you knew it, our house was full of these people who were coming there to learn about God. So it felt like God was up to something. So I, I called a second cousin and said, hey, who is that guy, Martin? Do you have his phone number? And he had the number. And so I called this guy, Martin. It turned out uh, Martin is a guy named Martin Sanders. And he's this noted Christian author. <laughs> And he's a pastor, and he's a seminary professor. So I'm like, Martin, uh, I started this Bible study. My house is full. I don't know what I should do. And he said, I know what you should do. You should come to seminary. So my wife and I sold our house in North Carolina, and we moved to New York to go to seminary. And Martin continued to pour into my life, into my wife's life for the next several years. A couple of weeks ago, Martin passed away. And I'm just so grateful for Martin because he saw me. He saw me and he spoke into my life and he cared about me. And I started thinking about what a profound impact Martin has had in the world because I'm sure that he's done this with hundreds of other people, many of whom are now pastors. I'm so grateful for Martin Sanders. I wonder where you are today. Maybe you're kind of like Ruth at the beginning of this chapter, or maybe like my old teenage self, awkward and insecure, wondering if you even matter, wondering who you belong to, or even if you fit in. Hear me now. Holy Spirit, come. Hear me now. Hear these words. You belong to him. You belong to the God of the universe, to the King of Kings. You are so incredibly valuable to him, so valuable that he died for you. I want to personally welcome you here to this faith family full of brothers and sisters who are under the wing of this God, under his care. Come, dine at this table today as equals, no matter where you were yesterday. Come. Come to the altar. Receive the bread of life and the cup of salvation, the body and blood of the king of Bethlehem. Or maybe, as you heard the story, you realize that something about Boaz's part in it is striking a chord with you. Maybe even God has put somebody in your mind that you're supposed to see, that you're supposed to speak into and speak dignity over. Somebody that you're supposed to speak blessing over 
Guys, this is world-changing stuff. Amen. It's world-changing stuff. Ruth is in the genealogy of King David. Ruth is in the genealogy of Jesus himself. Jesus would be a different Jesus without Ruth. Because her family tradition, her faith legacy is passed down and passed down and passed down and passed down and held by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Boaz saw her. Is God calling you to see somebody? Speak into their lives? Well, whether you're Ruth or Boaz today, the same encouragement applies. Don't waste your life doing what is right in your own eyes. That's right. Do what is right in God's eyes. For our Lord is good and his mercies are everlasting. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Praise God. Speak truth to my heart. Thanks for listening. Join us at the Mission Cleveland next week. God's betray me. Breathe life on my bones. For this desert is leaving me thirsty.